My name is Scott Simmons. I am one of the pastors that is here. Um, our text this morning is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. <clears throat> here now the reading of God's word. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless, in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring his best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he was received back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This ends the reading of God's word. 
If you listen to Seth's song, you don't need to listen to this sermon. (laughs) 16 years ago, maybe, give or take, I don't remember for sure, I was out, I think I was doing yard work. It's hard to believe, but yeah, I might have been out doing yard work. And I um, came home, came inside, I was all dirty, I took a bath. And um, at the time, I was a little bit overweight and I had my ring um, would get stuck on the on the um, um, joint here and so I had a trick to make sure that I could clean my hand well and not have gunk stuck underneath my ring and I would pull it off and I would just kind of stick it to the joint right there it would just stay right there and that's how I kind of dealt with life when I took a bath and then I I um, got out of the tub, started draining the tub, and I shook my hand to get the water off my hands. You know how this story goes. I mean, I couldn't have aimed any better if I tried. It went, the ring went right off my finger and right, right into, I mean, it was a swish, right into the drain. And the water just, just took it. Um, and, and it was gone. And, you know, immediately I start doing a cost-benefit analysis of the loss of my ring. What, what's it going to take to get this back, or should I just go buy a new one? Well, my, my uh, wife's uncle happens to be a plumber, and he said that the ring ought to have some sentimental value. So we, he actually came over. <laughs> he actually <laughs> he came over, and uh, we... we began the process of tearing this, our house apart, looking for this ring. So there's, you know, on the other side of the wall is my daughter's room, and we cut a little hole in the wall, and there's apparently a trap there. And they, uh, so he, he cut that open and had a little saw that he used to cut into where the trap was supposed to be, and also put a hole in my tub with the saw, so we had to fix that too. And so that's more cost added to looking for my ring and um, didn't find it there. Then there's in the kitchen apparently another place that if you cut a hole in the ceiling, you can find another place that the ring might have been trapped. So we cut a hole in the ceiling, look for it there, it's not there. My ring was in the sewer. Uh, As far as we can tell, it might still be in the sewer because I wasn't going to go find it. My wife tells me this does not mean our marriage is in the sewer. So, thankfully, the ring is gone. Well, not thankfully the ring is gone. Thankfully, we have a marriage. But the ring is gone. And I'm not going after it. But I am so thankful that God does not treat me the way I treated my ring. I was content to forget about the ring. I haven't thought about that ring. I have a new one. I've had it since I lost the old one. I haven't thought about that experience until I was preparing for this sermon. God was not content to forget about us. He wasn't content just to get someone new. The God of this passage is one who would spare no expense for his prodigal son who doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis like I did, 
when it comes to his people. He welcomes sinners with open arms. And that was the purpose of his ministry among us. This parable is the third parable that Jesus tells in a series of parables responding to what the Pharisees had been saying about him. They criticized Jesus for being a man who receives sinners and eats with them. And so he tells three parables of things that were lost. To the parable of the lost sheep, where 99 sheep were faithful, did not run away, but the one sheep that was lost, he finds and brings it back and rejoices. Then he tells a story of a woman who had lost 10 coins and rejoices when she finds the one that she lost after sweeping her whole house to find it. And the parables are building here. 99 that are faithful, one that is not, 10 that are remaining, one that gets lost. Then he tells the story of a father with just two sons. We're down to one to one here. Two sons. The older son was faithful. A brother who always did what he was told and diligently worked in the field for his father. And his son, his younger son, has a different story. He asks his father for his share of the inheritance so he can go off and spend it as if his father was already dead. And shockingly, his father agrees. And so the son goes off, leaves his father's household and squanders his father's inheritance on wild living. He goes to a foreign country, a Gentile country of sorts. We don't know which. And after famine hits, he ends up cleaning up after pigs, unclean animals. Pigs were unclean in Jewish dietary laws. So this is really, for a first century Jew, this is about as low as you can go. Starving and ranking somewhere under pigs in terms of how he fit in the social ladder where he was. And so he comes to his senses. But again, he's doing a cost-benefit analysis. It was better, the hired servants are better, treated better in his father's household than he's being treated right now. He can't hope to, be, to come back and be treated as a son. He's basically told his father, I wish you were dead, let me live without you. So he says, I'll come back. And I'll just ask him to treat me like one of his hired servants. And this is a shocking thing to do because that means he's going to have to endure shame. He's going to have to come back and live in the household as a hired servant where he used to be a son. He's going to have to endure the ridicule of his older brother. He's going to have to endure the shame of what he has done. It would never go away in his mind at the time. But that was even better than what he had been experiencing, and so he goes back. And his father is even more shocking than the son. Because as soon as the father, or as the son becomes within sight of his father, his father sees him, which means he was looking and then when he sees him, 
he runs. And this is not what wealthy landowners do in the ancient world. You don't hike up your tunic and run. That's a shameful thing to do. That's what you have hired servants to do for you. But he wasn't going to send hired servants after his son. He ran to him. He was so joyful that even though his son was trying to confess, just take me back as a hired servant, his father can't even contain his joy. Go get the best robe, put it on him. Let's have a party. It wasn't even a question whether to accept him back as a son. He had to. Because this was his son. His father was not going to do a cost-benefit analysis with his son. He was going to accept him back. And so he threw a party. He seems to have completely forgotten about his son's shameful past in light of simply the prodigal returned. And so he takes the shame of his son upon himself and throws a party so everyone can see, this is this my ungrateful son. I'm throwing a party for him, the one that squandered my wealth. I'm throwing a party for him. I'm taking his shame upon myself so he can be welcomed back as a son. My ring is in the sewer, and I'm not going there to find it. It's not worth that much to me. But Jesus crossed heaven and earth to enter into the sewer of our lives to rescue us. He took upon himself our sin and our shame. He hung on the cross as a public display of shame and guilt. But it wasn't his. It was ours. And he hung on that cross and ran to us. To all who would just Repent. He took our shame, our guilt, our frailty upon himself. We don't talk much about shame. We talk a lot about guilt. When we share the gospel with others, we typically do so using the doctrine of justification. We talk about guilt and innocence and righteousness. We take He takes our sin upon himself, our guilt upon himself. He gives us his righteousness so that we can be forgiven and we can be accepted in his sight. And this is true. But the gospel deals with more than just our guilt. The gospel also deals with our shame. Which we feel just as deeply, but often don't have the vocabulary to talk about. Shame is what makes us want to hide Shame is what made Adam and Eve hide in the garden after they had sinned and cover themselves up. It's more than just feeling guilty. It's the feeling that we are unworthy of being accepted, that we are not valuable before God. So what is it that leads us to repent And come home. For the younger brother, his life was disrupted by famine that made the life he was living there among the pigs worse than the possibility of coming home and living as a hired servant. 
And what he remembered about his father was that his father was kind. And that made him come back. But the son, even though he understood that, he had no idea who his father really was. He couldn't fathom that his father would run to him and accept him back as a son and throw a party for him. And so Jesus tells a story so that we can know who our Heavenly Father really is. So we won't have to doubt His acceptance and His forgiveness. When I served as a pastor up in Maryland, this is something that I came across a lot. It wasn't just that people struggled with the fact that they had sinned. It was the shame that people felt as a result Sometimes it didn't have anything to do with anything they had done themselves, but what had been done to them. Abuse that makes people feel like they aren't valuable, that makes people feel like they're worthless, like they're trash, because that's the way they've been treated by others. And I had, I remember one person that I had uh, counseled for a while she understood the doctrine of justification, and she understood that she was forgiven. But for her, it was a matter of transaction. God set up a situation such that if you repent of your sins, God is obligated to forgive you because of what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't because he wanted to forgive, it was because he had to. Because it was a cost-benefit thing for her. And she couldn't get past the fact that she didn't believe herself to be lovable. And so God accepted her simply because the tr transaction required it. And what this story tells us is that God just loves us. He just loves us. And none of that transaction changes that. None of the cost-benefit analysis changes that. He just loves her. That's why he died for her. That's why he ran to her on the cross. That's why he runs to us. That's why he accepts us. Jesus entered into the sewers of our lives to redeem us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to for us. That he might throw a party and we could be there with him. And this is the God that we have. This is the gospel we believe in. And so this ought to radically transform the way we live in this world with each other. Let's consider the older son. The older son was faithful outwardly. He had never left. He stayed and worked in the fields. He did whatever his father told him to do. But when his son, his, I mean, his younger brother comes back, his father throws a party, he comes back and sees the celebration and he wants to know what's going on and he finds out that he's thrown this party because his brother has come back and he can't even bring himself to refer to this man as his brother. He refers to it as your son, not his brother. And he won't go into the party. As I read the story, it reminds me of Jonah. The story of Jonah ends with the Ninevites repenting and Jonah staying outside, watching the celebration and not willing to participate. And so you see the, older's, the older brother's attitude 
All these years, he's been working, obeying his father's orders, slaving in the fields. But in return, he hasn't even received a goat to celebrate. See this again. For him, this was a matter of obeying and receiving what's due you for the work that you do. It wasn't about serving because you love your father. It was about getting what you deserve for what you do. He saw himself as being faithful, and so he deserved at least a goat. His brother was unfaithful, and so didn't deserve the party or the fatted calf. And so here we see that the older brother, even though he had been faithful outwardly, was not faithful inwardly. Inwardly, he was just as much of a prodigal as his younger brother. Life for him was a matter of earning and rewarding, not love and grace. He saw his brother as being unworthy of the party, and so he refused to join it. We have to recognize the subversive nature of this story. This is kind of like telling your children the story of Little Red Riding Hood, but with the wolf actually eating the child and no woodsman coming to rescue her. This is not the way you tell stories to your children. Stories don't end that way when you tell them to your children. This is not the way it's supposed to go. This story is not supposed to, that, that Jesus is telling is not supposed to go this way. It's supposed to go with the people that deserve to be rewarded, getting rewarded, and those that don't deserve to be rewarded, get punished. That's the way it's supposed to go in his brother's mind. But in many ways, what's happening here is very much the same story as the story of Jacob and Esau, where the older brother was the faithful one who stayed home. Whereas the younger brother, Jacob, runs away as a prodigal lives as a trickster in Laban's home and has to return as a prodigal and wrestle with God. But the prodigal is the one that the angel meets. The prodigal is the one that gets renamed Israel. God chose the prodigal of the two brothers. And what Jesus is saying here is pretty significant. Israel is defined and chosen because she is, or Israel is a prodigal who didn't deserve it. And when the Pharisees look down on those who are prodigals, they are failing to recognize their own prodigal character and they are not acting like true Israelites. They are not acting like they are part of God's people. The prodigals get it. The Pharisees don't. And that's why Jesus fellowshiped with sinners and ate with them. The difference between the older brother and the younger brother was simply a matter of geography. One stayed home and one left. And one recognized that he was a prodigal and one didn't. And that's what kept him from joining the party. It was his own self-righteousness that he couldn't see that he had the same need as his brother. I remember going to Baltimore City. I was working in a, it was in the Sandtown community where there was a Habitat for Humanity project and we had a home that we did uh, once a year. We would redo a home and we had a work day. A friend of mine and I were there working in the 
I guess you could call it a backyard, but it was a row home uh, in Baltimore City, and we were cleaning up trash. The two of us were working together, and as we're cleaning up the trash, he feels a prick in his hand. He picks up his hand, and there's a hypodermic needle sticking out of his hand. And so neither one of us are doctors, neither one of us know what kind of risks he's just put himself in, but all of us are doing a cost-benefit analysis to that situation at that moment. Is it worth it, what we are doing? He's now realizing he's going to have to go and get tested for AIDS and all sorts of other things, and uh, he's going to spend weeks worrying about what just happened. And I'm thinking, I got the rest of the day, I'm going to put my hands in this stuff again, What's it going to cost me? And I had to talk myself out of the thinking that would say, it's not worth it. I had to talk myself out of the thinking that would say, that would be judging towards the previous tenants of that home. The gospel talked me out of that cost-benefit analysis, to be thinking of the way I can love the future tenants of that home by serving, and by, even by putting myself at risk. And Jesus crossed heaven and earth and didn't even think about it. He knew he was giving his life for us. That we might join the party with him. So that we can dine with prodigals. So that God can make us his sons. If the gospel is real, if God really did run to us on the cross, if, he, if Jesus really did cross heaven and earth to redeem us, we can no longer be the same. We can't live like the Pharisees anymore. We can't look at life in terms of earning and rewarding. The grace of God undoes that way of thinking. Life is about love. Love generated from the gospel when we recognize how deeply we have been loved. We can't help but love others. And this is what compels us to live in the world in ways that are diametrically opposed to the way the Pharisees were approaching life in this world. It's all motivated by love. We realize that we all are prodigals. And we all have been received by grace and so we all can do nothing other than to receive others by grace as well. We have a Savior that came for the sick, not for the well, who came for the lost, not for the found. And he let his feet by be washed by sinners and prostitutes. One of my favorite authors is a man named Henry Nowen. He tells a story that's a it's a parable, it's not a true story, but uh, he tells a story of a fugitive who seeks refuge in a small village. And the village offered him shelter from the soldiers that were chasing him. And the soldiers realized that he's hiding up in this village and they threaten to burn down the village if the village don't, doesn't hand him over. So they go to their minister and they say, what, what should we do? Should we give the man over and save our village, or should we let our village be destroyed? And so the minister goes to his Bible, and he starts reading his Bible, trying to find some sort of answer to this problem. 
And uh, he comes across a verse that seems to answer it for him. It's very transactional in nature from John chapter 11. It is better that one man die than the whole people be lost. So he goes out and he tells them, the soldiers, where this man is. And they take him. And the village celebrates, but the minister can't bring himself to do so. He's, he feels so guilty, he uh, is in tears and he goes into his room and prays and as he's praying the angel an angel comes to him and says what have you done and he responds i handed him over and the angel replies you have given up the messiah to his captors and the minister says how could i have known now i expected as i was reading the story i expected him to quote jesus saying what you do to the least of these you do unto me but that's not that's not where now and takes the story. He says, if you would have closed your Bible, visited him, and looked into the eyes of the fugitive, you would have known. Now let's not overinterpret the story. I'm not suggesting that we should read our Bibles less. On the whole, perhaps we should be reading our Bibles more, but the problem here is not it, how much he was reading the Bible, it's that he never looked at the man. He never entered into this man's life, never looked into his eyes, never loved him as he was. So Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you do unto him, which is true of everyone we would sit in judgment on. If the older brother had seen the prodigal in himself and looked into the eyes of his younger brother, he would have joined the party. Our God is a God who throws party for parties for prodigals. We can't afford the luxury of looking down our noses at the prodigals. The very attempt removes us from the joy of the realization that we are prodigals too and we have been received and God rejoices over us and so we can rejoice over others as well. We miss the joy of the gospel. I remember uh, in our church we had to celebrate recovery ministry, which if you don't know, it's a recovery ministry for people who are struggling with addictions of various kinds. And one of the kinds of problems that they had was a lot of times when 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 people became a part of celebrate recovery the community became so strong that they would if people shared their needs they would just give and the guy that was running the celebrate recovery ministry often didn't realize how much financial giving was taking place just because people happened to be sharing and uh, to the point sometimes where it might not have always been wise, um, but one of the things that he found out as he was talking to those that were part of his ministry is just they realized that when you come to a celebrate recovery, we are all dealing with the same kind of mess in our lives. And when somebody else shares that they have a need because of the mess they're in, they give because, well, they've been there. We've all been there. And so they couldn't help but to give. 
The beauty of the gospel is that God looks. He sees us in our sin and in our shame. And he loves us. And so he ran to us. And that can be what compels us in every facet of the way that we live our lives, both in recognizing that we have been forgiven ourselves and that we can accept each other regardless of what they may have gone through as well. We are all here in the same boat. We are all prodigals. That's what defines us, just like that's what defined Jacob as Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us. That we each were lost, but you found us. That we were dead in our sins, but you make us alive because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and rise again that we might live. We pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to be able to accept this about us, but also the grace to be able to accept this in each other as well. That we might exemplify uh, the love that you have for us in the way that we treat each other. It's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Let's celebrate.